Great to see all of you today again. If you have a Bible, please turn, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. We'll be uh, continuing our study in Mark. We've been away from it here just this last week with a special speaker last Sunday. And uh, so back to Mark chapter 4. You know, back in the late 1800s, several businessmen joined forces to create a huge show of traveling entertainment. They called it the Barnum and Bailey Circus. It also came to be known as the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus after the Ringling Brothers put their circus together with Barnum and Bailey. They advertised it as the greatest show on earth. And uh, before the era of radio and TV, when people rarely traveled anywhere, it probably was a pretty impressive diversion from the routines of life. But in the ancient world, the greatest show on earth was the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I guarantee you, it was no circus. Jesus was healing all kinds of diseases. He was resolving all sorts of medical issues. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was demonstrating power over the natural world. He was stopping gale force winds with a spoken word. He was feeding 5,000 men, didn't count the women and children, 5,000 heads of a household. So so 5,000 men plus women and children fed them with one little fellow sack lunch. He totally confounded the Pharisees with his knowledge of the Old Testament. He was preaching soul-stirring, challenging messages with an authority that no one had ever seen before. The earthly ministry of Jesus was truly the greatest show on earth, and it was real. No tricks, no gimmicks, no emotional manipulation, just straight-up reality, straight-up demonstrations of divine power day after day after day. And yet most people did not believe. Most people did not repent and submit to the authority of this unbelievable supernatural rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. They were thrill-seekers, but they had no real interest in the teaching of Jesus. They had no interest in seeking the Lord or in pursuing a relationship with Him. They were just there for the miracles, just tagging along to see the show and get a thrill. Well, we're studying this morning the well-known parable of the soil, also known as the parable of the sower, here in Mark chapter 4. This is our third message on this particular parable, on this passage of Scripture. We're going to wind up our thoughts on this section of the Word today. But we want to read as we begin verses 1 through 9. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And again he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as it happened, as he sowed, the some seed fell by the wayside, the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up 
increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you were with us for any of our previous studies, you may remember that if you were studying this parable in a university or a seminary, they would call it a paradigm parable, meaning that the parable provides a framework for understanding a bunch of other parables. It's a model or it's a pattern for understanding other parables, and it really helps us to understand our world from an evangelistic perspective from an outreach perspective. In other words, this parable describes to us how people will respond to the gospel and why they do what they do with the gospel. And nothing could be more important for us than this, because we who know Jesus as our Savior have only one primary ministry responsibility. If we were to sum up the Great Commission the way Mark did at the end of his gospel, we would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Since this is our primary calling as followers of Jesus, and this is the final ministry command that the Lord Jesus personally gave to his disciples, it's very important for us to understand the responses that we're going to encounter as we speak to people about the Lord. This is a simple story that would be very familiar to the crowd there. Galilee was an agrarian area in in Israel, a farming agricultural area. You may know that the primary crops in ancient Israel were wheat and barley and olives and grapes and figs. There were other things grown, of course, pomegranates, various spices, other fruits. but, But the bulk of the farmland was taken up with wheat barley, olives, grapes, and figs. So everybody would understand this parable. They knew there was good soil. They knew there was bad soil. There was good soil that was relatively better than other good soil. And there were various reasons why some soils were better than others, just as there is today. So they got it. I mean, it was a very simple story. Everybody would understand the the story. But what about the spiritual meaning behind the story? Well, that was reserved according to verse 9, as we looked at a few weeks ago. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the understanding the spiritual meaning was reserved for the people who had ears to hear it. And not everybody did. Not everybody, I mean, everybody understood the story itself, but not everybody understood the meaning of the story. And that, as we studied a couple of weeks ago in verses 11 and 12, was by intention. Jesus was revealing truth to those who believed, but he was concealing truth from those who did not believe. Uh, They were unbelievers who were following Jesus strictly for the miracles. They were thrill seekers, as we said, who were happy to tag along for what was clearly the greatest show on earth. So we want to discuss this week, we've looked at a lot of the background information the last couple of times that we studied through this passage. We want to discuss this week the various types of soil and Jesus' explanation of them. So look at verse 14, if you would. Let's read the explanation, and then we'll talk about the four kinds of soil. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Let me just pause there for just a second and say, notice there are no adjectives describing the sower. All Jesus says is, the sower sows the word. So we know the seed is the word of God. He doesn't say anything about the sower except that he's sowing the word. He's he's putting out the word of God. He doesn't say the clever, brilliant, well-educated, articulate sower sows the word. He just says, the sower sows the word. 
We talked about it some a couple of weeks ago. I won't belabor the point again today, but it's just the point that our responsibility is to give the Word of God. And we cannot make the excuse, well, I'm not a good talker. Well, I can't think of anything to say. Well, I'm not as smart as I ought to be. Well, I don't know enough Bible verses. Well, I can't remember what all these things are I want to tell somebody. That happens to everybody. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to somebody and about 30 minutes later I go, oh man, I wish I'd have said such and such. That happens to everybody. And Jesus didn't say, once you've reached a point that you think you are so clever and so well educated and so articulate and so brilliant that you can witness somebody, then sow the word. No, he just said, the sower sows the word. Simple statement. Okay, verse 15. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately, takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, so only endure for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground to those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. A couple weeks ago, if you were with us, we looked the last time at the first type of soil. Jesus calls it the wayside, meaning the pathway or the roadway runs along beside the field. There were farmed fields in Israel alongside many roads. And of course, as the farmer sows, he's carrying a bag of seed. He's broadcasting the seed after he's plowed the ground. When he's near the edges of the field, some of the seed's going to fall on the edges of the pathway. As we talked about last time, the, the, the walkway is packed down hardened ground so nothing penetrates. The seed just lays on top of the ground and the birds swoop in and they eat it up. Jesus said the birds represent Satan who comes and snatches the seed away before anything can penetrate. I've said to you, I think the last few times we talked about this, that, that witnessing to some people is like throwing a tennis ball against a brick wall. It, it just bounces off. It, it is easy for Satan to snatch the word out of their hearts because they are hard-hearted. It's a very powerful word picture. This is, a, this is a calloused heart that does not respond to the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit, nor does it respond to the gracious hand of love from the Lord Jesus. It responds to absolutely nothing. It is a calloused heart. The Old Testament calls it being hard-hearted or stiff-necked. We've all seen people like that. We all know people like that. I've met people like that. You've met people like that. They have a calloused heart. The rejection of the Lord, the rejection of His Word has packed down the soil of their heart and they are so comfortable with their rebellion and their rejection of God that their heart is like a piece of rock. They may listen to you witness. They may visit church once in a great while, but ten minutes down the road, the word is gone, snatched away by the devil. We talked about that in a little bit more detail a couple weeks ago. But then, these other three types of soil, verses 16 and 17, Jesus explains the stony ground. He says the ones on stony ground are when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with gladness, 
and they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. See, the seed of the word gets sown in their hearts, and it's not a rock-hard calloused heart. It's a heart that has some soil mixed into the rocks. It's just shallow dirt. So we can call the wayside soil a calloused heart. We'll call the stony ground soil a shallow heart. They hear the word and immediately they receive it with joy. They get excited about it. Man, this is great. This is what I've been looking for. This can help me. This can fix my problems. Well, this is wonderful. I like this Jesus stuff. But Jesus says they have no root in themselves. So they're only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. They crash and burn spiritually. Jesus is telling us to expect temporary converts, not real ones, temporary. They, they have a shallow commitment. They have a shallow response. They are not truly born again, even though at first they kind of look like they are. They respond emotionally without counting the cost. They, they are looking for personal satisfaction, but it's all very self-centered. There are people who say, and I've heard people say, even to me, man, that sounds so good. I mean, I, I want Jesus if He can take care of my life and help me straighten out my problems, and then He can forgive me and take me to heaven. Wow, it would be great. What a great life. But it's all very self-centered. It's all very me-centered. I'm coming to Jesus for what I think He can do for me. This is nothing new to our time, nothing new to the modern days. Way back in the 1700s, the famous New England area preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he was well aware of this. He wrote a, what they called a, a, a treatise back in those days, just an article that we would call today, about what he called religious affections. Interesting, he said this in 1746, he said this. He said that our sinful hearts are fertile ground for what he called, it's an interesting phrase, fleshly religiosity. That is acting spiritual, but it's all rooted in self-love. This is so common today. This, this self-centered spirituality that wants Jesus only because Jesus will deliver what the person thinks they need. Jonathan Edwards wrote, High emotion experiences, gushy religious talk, even praising God and experiencing love for God in feelings can easily be very self-centered and self-motivated. You know, there's lots of modern-day ministries that, that are driving people emotionally to do things that have nothing to do with a real conversion. In contrast to that, Jonathan Edwards talked about experiences of genuine salvation from the Holy Spirit as always being God-centered, having an appreciation for God's grace, not having any self-interest for this life, not wanting to improve my life by having Jesus fix all my issues for me. You know, you see this all the time on social media. Pray this prayer, you'll get money. Pray this prayer three times a day for three days, you'll get a better job, etc., etc., etc. Now, Edwards correctly wrote that genuine conversion, truly coming to Christ, creates humility in the convert rather than pride. True salvation humbles us as we consider our sinfulness and the forgiveness and mercy of God. True salvation gives us a hunger for the Word and a desire for personal holiness. 
Let me show you two very interesting Old Testament verses. Hold your finger here and mark for it. We'll be back here in just a second. Look at Psalm 51 for just a moment. Psalm 51. Some of you well-versed Bible students will recognize Psalm 51. Just saying Psalm 51 as, as the psalm that David wrote after Nathan the prophet came and confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba. This is the psalm that he wrote. You know, it's interesting. That's what great musicians do when they have great troubles and sorrows and trials in their life. They sit down and they write a song about it. That's what David did. That's what Psalm 51 is. It's his, it's his song that he wrote after the prophet Nathan confronted him because of his adultery. But I want you to look at just, just one verse. You can read the whole chapter sometime. It's great. Look at verse 17. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What a great truth for us. Because some people say, man, I really blew it this week. I better go to church. Oh man, I've really been living bad. I need to go to church every week for, I mean, every week for two months. You know, oh God, I promise you, if you get me out of this mess, I'll go to church every Sunday for a year. Those are just sacrifices. People are trying to create some bargain with God. David says, when he repented, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, true conversion produces humility. True conversion produces this God-centered view of, Lord, I have sinned against you, as King David said. It creates this desire for personal holiness. Look at Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Again, just one verse I want to read to you. Isaiah 66. Last chapter in Isaiah. And I want you to read, I want to read just this phrase in, in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Just that phrase. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word. Does the word of God grip you? Does the word of God really mean something to you? Is there a phrase that just stirs your heart in some way? If you can read the Bible, or you can hear the Bible preached, or you can hear the Bible taught, you can look at verses in the Scripture, and it's all just ho-hum, nothing phases you, it just kind of goes right by. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you, you really need to examine your heart and see if you truly know the Lord. Because if you hear the Word of the Lord, it's going to be because you have this awesome reverence for who He is. Hear the Word of the Lord, you who tremble at His Word. And so back in here in, 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 in Mark chapter 4, 
Jesus says there's a lot of people and you're going to meet a lot of them. You talk to them about Christ, they're open, they're responsive. They say, man, this Jesus stuff is great. Wow, this is just what I need. This can help my life. This can fix me. I'm so excited about this. I want to go to church. I want to learn the Bible. I want to do this. And, and, and they're just going great guns for a few months. And then, then all of a sudden something happens. False conversions happen all the time. There's stony ground everywhere, shallow hearts everywhere. And, and the issue is not that people don't believe in Jesus Christ or don't believe in who He is or, or what He did. That's not the part that creates the false conversions. There are lots of falsely saved, false saved people, they're not really converted, they don't really know the Lord, who will tell you that they believe that Jesus lived, they believe Jesus died, they believe that Jesus rose again. That's relatively easy to accept. What makes a false conversion is a lack of repentance. No heart change regarding sin. The professing Christian world, that is people who say they know the Lord, is full of all kinds of people who believe in all sorts of facts and details of who Jesus is. You remember the passage in James 2.19? The demons believe and tremble, James said. That is, a, the, I mean, the demons have demonic faith. They know exactly who Jesus is. But true faith is about humility. It is about repentance. It is about self-denial. In the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon said one time, there are people who come forward under an emotional appeal and then immediately they go backward into their sin. He said they go into the prayer room and supposedly get converted in five minutes and then they have nothing to do with godliness for the rest of their lives. You see, there are stony ground people with shallow commitments all around us. Now if there's something a person doesn't want to believe or something that they don't want to submit to or some kind of persecution on the horizon or hard times come see that they lose a job they lose a relationship they lose money they lose a friend they get harassed by family members over this Jesus thing or they get seriously sick or somebody they love gets a disease or they die then they get mad at God for taking them and they start thinking that God isn't fair and I don't deserve this and they're gone poof they're gone You see, if someone's profession of faith in Christ doesn't come from a sense of their own sin and a humble heart and a desire to be delivered from sin and be under the gracious authority of Jesus Christ and a willingness to die to myself, even if it means suffering and serving the Lord Jesus, then they have no root, Jesus said. Their commitment is shallow and time will reveal that they are not truly in Christ. Thinking back... Over my almost four decades here in Hart Butte now, there are folks that I've talked to that I, I thought they came to Christ. They, they can give me all the right answers. They can say all the right things. They, you know, they, they can quote all the right verses. And then they just sort of vanish. Poof, they're gone. Uh, they're, they're stony ground believers. I don't think they were really saved. Most of the people that I've had the privilege of baptizing have, have stayed faithful to God. But there's some people that, that, uh, that, uh, want, that they said they wanted to be baptized. I talk to them about their faith in Christ. They give me all the right answers. They look me right in the face and they say, I know I'm headed for heaven and Jesus has forgiven my sin. And, and I want to live for God and I want to do the right things. And okay, I take them at their word. They follow the Lord in baptism. A few months later, whew, they're gone. 
like, a, like your breath on a cold morning. What are they? They're stony ground believers. Jesus said it, that it would be that way. Some people you witness to, it just bounces off them like nothing. they got a calloused heart. There are other people that look like they responded, but then they vanish after a while. Hard times come, difficulties come, something happens, and they fade away. But look at the third type of soil, the thorny ground, verses 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The word there, thorns, the Greek word acanthus, that's actually the name of a thorny weed, very common in the Middle East, found frequently in, in ground that's been cultivated, farm ground. Interestingly, this is the same word used in Matthew 27, 29, to refer to the crown of thorns placed on the, the head of the Lord Jesus at his crucifixion. It was made out of the same thorny weeds that Jesus is referring to here. Very, very common thorny weed called, called the, the acanthus. But this soil is not a response of shallow emotion. This is not a self-centered response. Uh, this, is not the, this is not the person who receives the word with joy and then fades away. We'll call this heart not the calloused heart, not the shallow heart. We'll call this the double-minded heart or the divided heart. We could even call it the distracted heart. This is the person who, who wants salvation. They want Christ. They want the kingdom of God. They want forgiveness. They want heaven. But they also want the world. And they want riches. And they want all the pleasures of the world and all the things of the world. This person wants to serve God and money. And remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God and money. This is exactly the story of the rich young ruler. Remember him, Matthew 19. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom? Jesus says, give away all your money and come and follow me. Jesus told him that because he knew that was his idol, was his money. He wouldn't do it. He said he went away sorrowful because he had great riches. You see, the, the, the thorny ground heart is the heart that unfortunately loves the world and all the things that are in the world. Remember 1 John 2 says, Therefore the love of God is not in him. If we love the world and all the things that are in the world, then the love of God is not in us. This is the heart that is, in a sense, the enemy of God. James chapter 4 verse 4 says it loves the world. Friendship with the world, it, it makes you an enemy to God. This is the kind of heart, as Jesus points out in Luke chapter 9, where, where one fellow said to him, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but I can't follow you now. I have to go home and bury my father. Now that did not mean that his father died yesterday and he had to wait till after the funeral. That's not what he's talking about. He was waiting for his father to pass away so he could get his inheritance and have some money, and then he would follow Jesus. He's basically saying, Lord, I'm, I'm, I, I want to follow you. I'm going to follow you, but I can't follow you now. I've got to go home and wait till I get my inheritance, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, he said, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. See, Jesus is not saying that you can't have a decent job and earn money or have money or enjoy the material possessions of life. He is saying that you can't serve God and serve money. And see, if our stuff that we have 
keeps us from doing the will of God, then the thorns are choking us out. Look at 1 Timothy 6, if you would please. 1 Timothy 6. We'll be back here in a second to Mark 4, but look at 1 Timothy 6. Again, a very well-known passage about money. If you are... If you're interested in doing some fascinating but brief studies on money, 1 Timothy 6 is a great place to do it. 1 Timothy 6, we're going to begin to read in verse 6, and we're going to just go up to verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and gentleness Paul is not saying don't have a job and don't make money and don't work he's saying you cannot chase money you cannot serve God and money the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil people have strayed from the faith they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows if you are just desiring I am going to be a multi-millionaire he says you're going to fall into temptation and a snare which has drowned people in destruction It is very interesting that the prosperity gospel that's out there today promises all of the things of the world plus Jesus. Isn't that what it does? You can have all the world has to offer. You can have riches and you can have all the things you want plus you get Jesus. As the famous book said, you can have your best life now. The gospel does not promise us what our sinful heart already wants. The gospel does not guarantee to give us the world, to give us riches, to give us every material thing that we desire, a new house and a new car and loads of money. Now when you come to Christ, you you have to let go of the world and the love of riches and all the other things that this world has to offer. You deny yourself. You deny the world. You take up your cross. You follow Jesus. In many countries of the world, when you come to Christ, it may mean hardship or suffering or death. Here in North America, we generally have it pretty easy so far. But who knows what the future may hold? You probably know the name Demas. In 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says, Demas has forsaken me because he loved this present world. The thorns got to him. He abandoned Paul because of his love for the present world. And there are people like this. They want Christ, but they don't want to let go of anything. They want want their life in the world plus Jesus. I'm not giving up anything. I'm not stopping anything. I'm I'm not changing anything. I just want to add Jesus to what I already got and all of my other goals. doesn't work that way. Jesus says they're thorns. They're just choking you out. Now, as I said a moment ago, it isn't that you won't have anything. 
The Lord will give you whatever He chooses to give you in, in, in blessing you. The Lord will give you food to eat. The Lord will give you a place to stay. The Lord will take care of your, of your needs. I love King David's words, Psalm 37, 25. I've quoted them many times to my children. And, my, and I've said, I was young and now I am old. And I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. You don't see God's faithful people out on the street begging for bread because God will be your provision. He will supply all of your needs, as Philippians 4 tells us. But the distinguishing mark of a true believer is not a love for those things or the desire for those things. It is a love for God that keeps the Lord as our highest priority. Again, the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. It is a matter of what your heart desires. It is a matter of priority. And Jesus says sometimes the word falls on thorny ground. And people hear it. And they seem to be responding. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other stuff chokes out the word and they become unfruitful. So what's the evidence of true faith? It's not an emotional experience. It's not a warm feeling when you think of Jesus. It's not a desire to be blessed. Lots of people want to be blessed. They want everything they think God can possibly give them. That's the devil's message in the prosperity gospel. True faith is a transformation turning a person from loving self to loving God. Turning a person from pride to humility. Turning from the power of sin to the power of righteousness. Old things have passed away. All things become new. That writing by Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s describes true believers as having new hearts and new eyes and new ears and new tongues and new hands and new feet. They walk in newness of life and they continue to do so to the end of their life. They love God. They love Christ. They realize their weaknesses, they realize their failings, but they are pursuing the greatest commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that brings us to the good soil. It bears fruit. One verse. These are the ones sown on good ground. Verse 20. Those who hear the word accepted and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. It produces holiness. It produces right living and a Christ-honoring testimony. It represents Jesus in this world. And notice how it does this. There are three present tense participles in that verse. Hear, accept, and bear. Hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. They're all present tense, meaning it's a continuing action. A participle is just a form of a verb that also describes things like an adjective. You are in the process of hearing the word. You are in the process of accepting it. By accepting it means to receive it, to make it yours, to own what it says, to apply it to your life. You are in the process of hearing the word. You're in the process of accepting it. And you are in the process of bearing fruit, producing something in your life that pleases God. And you continue doing these things throughout your life. 
That's what Jesus says. It tells that you have a true heart, a true heart of faith in the Lord Jesus. You are in the process of hearing, in the process of accepting the word, in the process of bearing fruit. Are some years better than others? Yeah, probably. That's the way farming is. Some years are great. Others are not so good. Some are a little rough. I think that's part of what Jesus meant when he said 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Some years may be 30-fold years, being 30 times the fruit that's a, the, the seed that's being planted. Sometimes 60-fold, sometimes 100-fold. Some people struggle for years and they're 30-fold producers their whole life. But they are producing something. And over the long haul, you are hearing the word, you are accepting it, you are bearing fruit. It is a matter of the heart. So when you pray and you witness, and you serve, and you struggle with discouragement, and you keep praying, and you keep serving, and you keep witnessing, and you keep struggling. Remember this phrase. Duty is ours. Outcome is God's. Duty is ours. Outcome is God's. God holds us responsible for doing what we should be doing. But only God can change hearts. Duty is ours, but outcome is God's. It it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4. God's looking for faithfulness. May God help us to never, never stop sowing the seed. Never give up praying for your lost relatives. Never give up speaking the word to the Lord, about the Lord Jesus to anybody who will listen. Never give up. Never quit. Because duty is ours. But the outcome is God's. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a many ways a very discouraging world. Seems like so few make true long-term commitments to Christ, and yet Jesus said that that's that's exactly what you told us to expect. Out of these four types of soil, we could say only twenty-five percent of the of the soil was good soil. Some of the seed fell by the wayside. Some of it fell in stony ground. It was shallow. Some fell on thorny ground and all the cares of the world and the pursuit of money and all the things people want out of this life all kind of chokes out the word. Yet, Lord, we know there will be some people who will hear, they will accept it, they will respond, they will bear fruit, and they will keep on for the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. So, Lord, we rejoice in the long-term fruit that we see in the lives of many people. We know, I know, Lord, many folks sitting right here in this auditorium today have come to Christ a decade or two ago and are still serving God today and are still trying to bear fruit and are still hearing the Word and still accepting it and still applying it to their lives and still owning what it says and still producing things that bring glory to God. And we thank You, Lord, for the great blessing of seeing that continuing fruit. But Lord, as we struggle along with uh, people's responses to the gospel, may we remember this parable. And may we remember, Lord, that that duty to serve you, that's ours. That's our responsibility. But the outcome belongs to you. 
May we trust you and continue to sow the seed with everything within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.